39, the City of Chicago versus the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, Mr. Rosenthal. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Incinerators that recover energy from the burning of municipal solid waste, known as resource recovery facilities, received an exemption from federal hazardous waste regulation under a 1984 amendment to the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. The question presented here is whether that exemption ceases to have effect once these incinerators actually burn the waste sent there for incineration. The 1984 amendment is entitled Clarification of Household Waste Exclusion. On its face, it requires some understanding of what the household waste exclusion was and what Congress was seeking to clarify in 1984. Accordingly, I will begin by examining the regulatory framework that confronted Congress when it enacted the statute, and I will then discuss the statute's purpose, history, and its text. I will leave the question of what deference is owed to the views of the Environmental Protection Agency on this statute to the United States. In 1976, Congress first enacted RICRA, creating a comprehensive scheme for the disposal of solid waste. RICRA divides solid waste into two categories, hazardous and non-hazardous. It creates a far more demanding, expensive, and cumbersome scheme for the disposal of hazardous waste. In the statute, Congress delegated to the Environmental Protection Agency the authority to define, by regulation, what substances should be deemed hazardous. Household waste poses special problems within this regulatory framework. Although the vast majority of household waste is non-hazardous, occasionally people do throw away things that technically qualify as hazardous. The used flashlight battery or the occasional can of paint thinner. Mr. Rosenthal, you, you seem to acknowledge then that at the end of the day, the ash may contain material that under the ordinary definition, would be considered hazardous waste. Given the posture we are in today, yes, I think the court okay. has to take that as given. And, and uh, would you explain um, the scope of your position? Uh, you represent uh, the city, which operates its own resource recovery facility? That's correct. And what does it do with the ash at the end of the day? The city contracts first with a hauler, take the ash to a landfill, and second with the landfill at which the ash is disposed. And the landfill is out of state? It, it, at one point in this case, it was currently the ash is being disposed of at a lined monofill in Joliet, Illinois. Not owned or operated by the city? That's correct. A it, private it, landfill. It has a contract with Now, do you take the position that the plain language of uh, the statutes um, mean that there is an exemption all the way down the line, even in the private landfill, and with regard to what the owner of the private landfill does with the ash? I do, Justice O'Connor. And the reason for that is because that is, in fact, what the household waste exclusion was when originally promulgated and what, the, what was continued by Congress. I, I, I ask that because the statute, uh, 6921, refers to uh, the exclusion for the resource recovery facility and um, what it does in treating, storing, disposing, or otherwise managing the waste. And so 
do you think it's uh, clear from the plain language of the statute that the exemption extends to down the line private landfills? I think it is both from the language of the statute and when it's placed in the context of what Congress was trying to clarify. Of course, well, as I understood it, you, you make a plain language argument, and I just wondered what the plain language was that you thought covered uh, a private landfill. Well, it, it is the deeming clause, because the, the statute says that the resource recovery facility shall not be deemed to be treating, storing, disposing, or otherwise managing hazardous waste. If you think that the hazardous waste regulations apply when the garbage arrives at the landfill because of the fortuity that we don't use our own landfill, then at that point, as they dump the waste off the truck, you would be deeming the city, or EDF does deem the city, to be disposing of hazardous waste at that point. But the statute prohibits that result. It says that a resource recovery facility shall not be deemed to be disposing of hazardous waste. So in other words, to me, you wouldn't be deeming it to dispose of hazardous waste because it was disposing of hazardous waste. You don't have to deem a darn thing. What the statute is saying is uh, that at least at a certain stage, they shall not be deemed. The statute is written in such a way as to say, don't treat them as if they are doing this. That, that's correct. And what that means, I, I take it, is that if you think that the resource recovery facility, in this case, EDF argues that as employees of the resource recovery facility are sweeping out the ash from the incinerator and trying to figure out what to do with it, the employees are supposed to treat that ash as hazardous waste and ship it and dispose of it under those regulations. Well, there, there, may, be, there may be a period of uncertainty as to when one regime ends and another begins, uh, but I don't see how you can, uh, how you can read this uh, as defining the ash as non-hazardous waste as opposed to directing that the, that the recovery facility shall not deemed to be uh, dealing with it. Uh, and if you, if you do not read this, and in its plain language, it is not a definition of hazardous waste, nor is it a provision saying ash is not, then at most, it seems to me, you can get by plain language is that uh, you don't treat the ash as hazardous waste until it leaves the hands of the recovery facility. But at that point, I don't see how anything in this statute by its terms covers the ash. Of course, the only defendant in this case is the resource recovery facility. Because I take it even EDF doesn't think that Congress intended to create an exemption where if the resource recovery facility disposes of the material on site at its own landfill, adjacent to the incinerator, Congress would treat all that as exempt, but the fortuity that you instead use an independent contractor off-site that would trigger a different result. E EDF apparently doesn't even think that that distinction makes any sense. And I think especially when you put the plain language into the regulatory context, it becomes quite clear. Because when EPA defined by regulation what was hazardous in 1980, it bowed to the practical reality that... Mr. Rosenthal, one uh, question about this chronology. At what point did the testing occur that showed that there was a risk of contamination to groundwater because of the, the residue might leach out of the landfill. That was not, that testing occurred, didn't it, after this original EPA regulation 
that you say drives the whole, first the regulation and then the statute and then EPA's subsequent interpretation? That EDF did the testing. The city has never... When did that occur chronologically? Was it after the original EPA regulation? It it, it was. It was from 1981 to 1987, the test relevant to this facility. So was it appreciated that the ash, as distinguished from the household waste that went to the incinerator, uh, would have a hazardous potential? The city had always taken the position that the ash was not hazardous waste under the EPA regulation. EDF questioned that, and that led to the test that in turn led to this litigation. In 1980, when the regulation was promulgated, it said that the entire household waste stream was excluded, up to and including the ash. And it was explicit. The EPA was explicit in excluding the ash. But your answer is that the testing occurred after that initial exclusion. That's correct. That's correct. Then, in 1984, this statute was enacted. The statute, of course, is entitled Clarification of Household Waste Exclusion, not Modification or Repudiation, Clarification of Household Waste Exclusion. Congress expressly referred to and incorporated an existing construct, which was a waste stream exemption. Well, Mr. Rosenthal, in, from 85 to 92, uh, was the official position of the EPA to the effect that the ash was subject to subtitle C regulation? The, the official position in, in a... EPA put out a statement in 1985, which by 1987, when Mr. Porter testified before Congress, they were already saying our position doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, is your answer yes or no? I, I, I'm not sure. I think my answer is that their official position was that they saw no intent on the statute to reach the S, but that they weren't going to do anything about it. And what happened during that interval? Did they enforce uh, Subtitle C? Did the city comply with Subtitle C? Never. The city never complied with Subtitle C. It took the position throughout that period of time that it wasn't applicable. The United States never brought an enforcement action against the city or any other resource recovery facility. And... After the congressional moratorium on new EPA regulations expired, we, we found Administrator Riley's um, ruling on this subject, which repudiated the 1985 statement. In short, given this context, a principle of statutory construction comes into play, which I think is quite useful in resolving this case. That principle being that Congress is deemed to approve of existing administrative practices or constructions when it legislates, absent clear evidence to the contrary. The reason I think that principle is useful is because when I look for the clear evidence to the contrary, I cannot find any. I cannot find any in the plain language of the statute, which, again, is entitled Clarification of Household Waste Exclusion. Congress thought it was clarifying something that was not previously clear, and in two respects, undisputed in this case, it was clarifying. How broad is this principle of which you speak, of which you speak, Mr. Roosevelt, that Congress is deemed to approve existing administrative construction when it legislates? I take it it's when it legislates about the precise matter with which the administrative construction dealt? And, of course, I, uh, we need to go no further in this case than that. It, uh, but for, first answer my question, will you? before commenting on it. 
In, in cases like North Haven Board of Education versus Bell, the court has applied this principle even when the Congress amends other portions of the statute, but not the pertinent portion of the statute. Here, of course, we need not guess because Congress explicitly put into the statute the household waste exclusion. It is well, may, may I interrupt you there? You say Congress explicitly put into it. Was the, I don't have the, um, the text of the prior EPA reg in front of me. Was the EPA reg uh, a deemer clause in which referred to the resource recovery facility as not being deemed to be dealing in hazardous waste? It was not, because it was issued pursuant to EPA's delegated power to define what hazardous waste is. So it is written in terms of definition, the definition of hazardous waste. It does not use the verb deeming. But I do take it that when Congress tells us that what it thinks it is doing is clarifying the household waste exclusion, Congress should be taken at its word. Well, maybe the Congress sometimes engages in the use of euphemism, uh, and if, in fact, what Congress did was to come up with a text which was in some significant way different from what it purported to be clarifying, uh, we've, we've got to give some significance to the text. Uh, and it seems to me that one big significance is EPA said, ash isn't hazardous. Don't treat it that way. Congress is saying when a recovery facility is doing certain things, it will not be deemed to be, i.e., pretend it's not dealing with hazardous waste. That's a very different provision. Well, when you, when you start, uh, I, I think it is appropriate to take Congress at its word. Congress knows how to... Well, which, which word? The word of the text or the, or the word of the, uh, uh, the, the title? The, well, of course, what, Congress... What, what, what if we find that, uh, that the that the plain language of the text is, is less a clarification than a modification. Well, of course, Justice Souter, Congress enacted all those words, and I think they all have to be taken at their word. We start with, I think, a strong presumption that Congress should be read simply to clear, be clarifying the existing regulatory construct. If we can find clear evidence further down in the statute that Congress had misrepresented the statute in its title, Maybe there would be a different result, but I don't think there is clear evidence further down. Well, aren't you uh, con confusing ratifying with clarifying? I'm, I'm trying not to because it is clear that Congress did clarify in two respects that are not in dispute, which I think is one of the reasons why the language does not precisely track EPA's household waste exclusion. But if, if, if you say, if Congress says we're clarifying something, that suggests that the meaning may have been indeterminate before and that Congress may be giving it at least a partially new meaning. Whereas if you say ratifying, that means that Congress is approving the, the previous administrative construction. I, I quite agree. And it is our view that Congress was clarifying, not ratifying. In fact, it was quite unclear under EPA's household waste exclusion whether if a facility also received non-hazardous commercial and industrial waste, in addition to household waste, it would still qualify for the household waste exclusion. That was entirely unclear. Congress clarified that by making it explicit, broadening the exemption to say if you also accept non-hazardous commercial and industrial waste, you qualify. Absent some very clear indication that Congress was not serious and should not be taken at its word when it said it was clarifying. 
Congress should not be deemed to have worked such a fundamental and far-reaching change in the prior regulatory framework. And indeed, if one is looking for evidence of an intent to change the law, not to clarify, but to change, to dramatically narrow the previous household waste exclusion, one certainly cannot find it in the legislative history. In fact, EDF's position on the legislative history, of course, is ignoring because if you do look at the legislative history, it addresses this problem clearly and expressly and far from evincing an intent to dramatically narrow the exclusion. It embraces the exclusion. It states that it recognizes it is a waste stream exclusion. It goes on to say that resource recovery facilities should be fit within the household waste exclusion. And it further states that economic impediments to the success of the resource recovery process should be removed. So if you did require, enforce at the landfill, if you will, you would have created a huge economic disincentive to the resource recovery process without any evidence that Congress intended to create this massive new regulatory burden. The, the statute, uh, Council, has two definitions, a definition of disposal and a definition of hazardous waste generation. Uh, in, in your view, are these discrete categories or is there some overlap between the two? I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, it seems to me, let me put it this way, that it's essential to your case uh, to show that uh, the facility that treats the household waste um, is disposing of the waste uh, when it stores it on when it stores the ash on site or when it ships it off. Uh, but then, in other instances, other facilities would be uh, said to be generating a hazardous waste when it did that. Well, uh, uh, of course, hazardous disposal is a defined term. It says putting the waste in land or water so that it could be exposed to the environment. And in my view, there is really only one point in the process at which this ash is disposed of, and that's when it goes to the landfill. That, and as Administrator Riley notes in his ruling on the subject, ordinarily the only hazardous waste that these facilities dispose of is the ash. But hazardous waste generation is also a defined term, and it does not seem to me that your argument takes that into account or that if it does, uh, your position must be that one of these exempt facilities um, can be said to be disposing of waste when other facilities would be uh, generating it. Well, it, I, it seems to me that you are saying that there's an overlap between what the statute treats as two discrete categories. What, well, what we have here is a situation where the precise act by which the ash is generated Incineration is already covered by the statute because that act is treatment within the meaning of the statute, and Congress put treatment in. So it would have been surplusage to also put generation in. Indeed, EPA's own household waste exclusion didn't use the term generation. If you had another facility that was not exempt, it would be uh, proper for the government to say that the creation of the ash was hazardous waste generation, would it not? In other words, it's only because of this particular construction that you give to the exemption that the term hazardous waste generation seems to become irrelevant, and I don't 
quite understand how you can do that consistent with the statutory scheme. If the act of generating is already exempt under another term that Congress put into the statute, and in my view it is, it's already exempt because it's treatment. But the legislative report did include both words, did it not? It did. I take it that the author of that report, out of an abundance of caution, because it was clear to the author of that report that everything was exempt, put the word in. But the drafter of the statute evidently worried that if surplusage was put into the statute, that might create some mischief, tracked the household waste exclusion, which itself did not use the term generation. And I think if you look at the statute's underlying purpose, this becomes even clearer, because, of course, Congress has told us what its purpose is. It enacted a purpose provision in RICRA. It had two relevant purposes, to encourage uh, resource recovery and to reduce the nation's need for landfill space. And as Administrator Riley recognized, those purposes would be dramatically undercut if the exemption didn't extend to ash. Indeed, on EDF's view, this entire statute is meaningless because EDF believes that only the incoming waste stream is exempted by the statute. But the incoming waste stream was already exempt prior to the enactment of this statute. All the incoming household waste was exempt from hazardous waste regulation under the EPA regulation, and non-hazardous commercial and industrial waste, by definition, was exempt. So on EPA's view, this statute is a completely empty gesture. I submit that that is not a sensible way to construe it. A couple of times referring to the landfill, you said the fortuity that the city didn't own the landfill. Is that, is it common that the landfill is independently owned and operated? I, I, it is frequent. I don't know which pattern is more common, but it is certainly frequent that landfill space is owned by an independent contractor. Mr. Rosenthal, even on the least generous view of EDA's position, the statute is not completely useless, is it? Because it does clarify the significance of receiving non-hazardous industrial waste. It does not clarify that at all if it only deals with the incoming waste stream, because that incoming waste stream was already exempt because it is, by definition, non-hazardous. You mean it was already exempt even if it included both household and industrial non-hazardous? If it included, if the incoming waste stream included only household waste and non-hazardous commercial and industrial waste, nothing in that incoming waste stream would be subject to hazardous waste regulation under RICRA prior to 1984. This leaves me, if there are no further questions, to the, to the EPA's view, and on that I will defer myself to the United States. Very well, Mr. Rosenthal. Mr. Muneer, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Chicago and EDF each argue that this case is controlled by the plain language of the statute, but they reach very different conclusions as to what that language means. As their disagreement suggests, Section 3001I does not squarely resolve the precise issue before the court. The statute says nothing specific about ash residues, and the statute is ambiguous on the more general question of whether it grants an exemption covering all of the facility's operations, including ash disposal. The practical result is this case closely parallels Chevron itself, where the issue was whether the Clean Air Act uh, regulates stationary sources on a plant-wide or component-by-component basis. And as in Chevron, the court should look for guidance from the administrative agency that is the expert in this field and that is charged with administering the statute. 
EPA's views are highly relevant in this situation because RICRA gives e this situation a little bit different from Chevron here. The, what was issued was, was an interpretive bulletin, wasn't it? It's actually a, a memorandum issued from the director, the administrator of EPA, to the regional administrators directing them uh, how they should uh, enforce the act. Uh, in APA parlance, that would be an interpretive rule. Now, Chevron itself also involved an interpretive rule. Uh, the d only difference between the two situations was the, Chev the Chevron case involved an interpretive rule that was subject to notice and comment. However, it is our view that notice and comment does not have any bearing on the question of whether the interpretation is entitled to deference. The question instead is whether this is an authoritative interpretation of the agency. And that, in fact, it is. It comes directly from the administrator himself. Mr. Muneer, I'm troubled still by the fact that the statute that we are asked to interpret deals with um, what we do with a resource recovery facility and what conduct of that facility is exempt from Subtitle C. Yes, Your Honor. And the uh, EPA memorandum seems to be addressed more to whether ash itself should be treated as a hazardous waste, um, which presumably would take it all the way down the line. And I, I, I'm, I'm having some difficulty with understanding how we should interpret the statute as applied ultimately to the private landfill. One of the problems in this area, obviously, is that the EPA's household waste exclusion, which it passed as a legislative rule in 1980, exempts a waste stream from the time that the, the, uh, the household waste is picked up at the curbside until it finds its ultimate destination in an incinerator or a landfill. Section 3001I is, in fact, a facility or process exemption instead. And EPA has attempted to reconcile these two uh, by, in fact, saying that uh, we look at the, pro the matter this way, and this is set forth in, in footnote 9 of our brief on page, or footnote 6 at page 19. Uh, the, the incinerator that receives the waste, uh, it has the exemption up to the time it burns it, obviously. Uh, the exemption, the section 3001 exemption allows it to mix household waste with non-hazardous commercial waste. The question then arises, uh, what about the ash that re results from this? If the ash is non-hazardous, then there's no question here. There's been no generation of a hazardous waste, and it could be sent to the landfill. On the other hand, if the ash does test positive, is hazardous, the question is, what do we do then? And that is the question that EPA has, in fact, answered through its interpretive uh, memorandum. It's indicated that in that situation, the household, the, the facility, the resource recovery facility, preserves the exemption. The exemption continues to apply to the waste stream, and it can send it on to a, a landfill. Uh, and what about when it's in the landfill? It, maybe it covers uh, the city, the resource recovery facility until it dumps it out on the ground. But then what? Well, the statute is, it's, itself is ambiguous on this. And that, for that reason, the EPA has made the interpretation that the exemption continues to apply, just as if household waste alone was incinerated. Uh, keep in mind do, that do we have to decide that here? I mean, I guess we don't have the landfill before us. We have the resource recovery facility. How much do we have that's to right. decide here? You don't ultimately have to decide it, but I think it's important to, to understand that issue in, in deciding what, uh, what this regulation, in fact, does, what the, what the household waste exclusion does, what the clarification itself does. And I think that's a relevant consideration. It's obviously something that EPA has considered in, in reaching its formulation of... of 
of the issue. Mr. Minier, isn't it crucial to the city to know whether they have to pay $453 a ton to the landfill? Yes, that's right. And EPA, as I say, has now clarified that in the interpretive memorandum that uh, Administrator Riley issued. I made clear that the exemption continues to apply in to the act. In answer to question, though, I take it that what you said is, well, to decide this case, you can leave it hanging whether that $453 price tag has to be picked up by the city of Chicago. Technically, this case is only against the uh, resource recovery facility, and that is all I, I meant to imply by whether you could decide the issue. You needed to decide the issue in this case. The question is whether the resource recovery facility can take advantage of that exemption, and it leaves open. This case does not necessarily involve the landfill itself. But the landfill has to be paid by that somebody, and that somebody is the city of Chicago. That is correct. May I ask, just say, maybe it's in the papers and I just forgot it, how many of these facilities are there in the country now? Uh, there's about a 150 resource recovery facilities. Has the EPA ever proceeded against any of them? No, it has not. Mr. Minear, why, why, uh, why was there no need for notice and comment for this interpretive regulation? I think it's important to remember that this regulation is, or this statement by the agency is a statement of non-regulation. It's stating that it will not regulate this particular waste disposal practice. The 1985 statement that was issued as part of the, uh, a, another regulation that also did not have notice and comment uh, indicated that the, the statute was silent on this issue and that further technical studies need to be done, but it would not be imposing any additional regulations. And in fact... Uh, is that the requirement for notice and comment? No, it is not. Notice and comment is required in those cases other than interpretive regulations. But in fact, in many cases of interpretive regulations, the agency utilizes notice and comment because it's very helpful in the process. All of them that are interpretive regulations, the agency was just doing voluntarily. Uh, in many cases, it is. It is, it is useful for the agency to have notice and comment uh, to get a full panoply of views so it can reach a reasoned determination on a particular matter. Mr. Minier, with, with respect to the question whether the ash stream itself is exempt for as far as it may go, would you explain to me, by reference to the text of the statute, what is ambiguous about it? Well, there are the parties disagree, but that doesn't necessarily make an ambiguity. And what, what in the text is ambiguous about the question whether the ash stream is or is not forever exempt? I think there's even disagreement about the ambiguity, but let me point to two sources of ambiguity. One is the uh, uh, grammatical ambiguity, the opening phrase, a resource recovery facility recovering energy from. It's unclear so whether that is... from the beginning of 3001I? That is correct. Uh, that it is unclear whether recovering energy is a true participle or a fused participle, using Henry, Henry Fowler's modern English usage. Uh, and that does lead to some ambiguity. Does this say a resource recovery facility that recovers energy, or is it really focusing on the gerund recovering energy itself? Well, but that, that, that ambiguity goes to the question of what resource dis recovery facility is covered. Uh, how does that ambiguity affect the, uh, the, the, the question whether the ash stream, which is generated by whatever recovery facility generates it, is forever exempt? Because if Congress is only concerned with the recovering energy from the mass burning of waste, it presumably is only concerned with the incineration process and not other parts of the facility's operations. No, but let's. No, but I, I'm worried. I, I'm concerned about not not the problem of where the exemption stops and starts within the facility, if you will. I'm concerned with whether there is an exemption that survives the point at which the ash leaves the facility and goes to a landfill. And as to that, uh, which which raises the question whether the ash is exempt or the facility is exempt. As to that, where is the ambiguity? 
On that point, the statute, in fact, is silent. And in this situation, it's important to remember the context. Well, it's, it's silent, isn't it, in the sense that it doesn't talk about ash, it just talks about recovery facilities. That's right, but the, it's meant to clarify uh, EPA's regulation, the household waste exclusion, which did indicate that treated waste, in other words, ash, would continue to be exempt. So in fact... Well, it's a very strange clarification. If the EPA reg was, was clear and explicit, and the statute is silent... Uh, it, it seems to me rather odd to, to accept the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the claim of the statute that it's, that it's clarifying as distinct from changing. This might, might help to, 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 to clarify the issue. If household waste alone was burnt in the resource recovery facility, the ash from that product under the 1980 regulation would in fact be exempt. Uh, and this just simply goes on to, to the question of whether the combined waste stream would be exempt as well. Thank you, Mr. Manier. Uh, Mr. Lazarus, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The City and the United States this morning are making different, yet equally implausible claims. The City claims that Section 3001I's plain meaning exempt from subchapter C hazardous waste regulations, facilities that that provision never mentioned, and generator requirements that that provision never mentioned. Now, the United States agrees with us that the plain meaning of the provision doesn't support the city's construction, but then reaches the same result through its own equally flawed analysis. Both the city and the United States, however, are wrong for precisely the same reason, and that reason is Section 3001I's plain meaning. Section 3001I means just what it says, no more and no less. It exempts certain activities of a particular kind of resource recovery facility from subchapter C. It does not purport to exempt any activities of any other kind of facility, nor does it purport to exempt the resource recovery facility from the distinct generator requirements of subchapter C. Let's look at section 3001I, the language of it, and consider precisely what the city is arguing. Right now, in Joliet, Illinois, there is a private landfill disposal operator that is disposing of 180,000 tons of hazardous ash in a landfill that Congress deemed not to have the safeguards necessary for the disposal of hazardous waste. Now, the city claims that that private landfill operator is exempt from subchapter C. Where in the language of section 3001I did they find that intent? Is that landfill operator ever mentioned in Section 3001I? No. Well, M Mr. Lazarus, did you bring this lawsuit? Did your organization? Yes, it did. Well, if, if you were concerned about the uh, private landfill operator, why didn't you join the private landfill operator? Because it was essential in this case, Your Honor, uh, to, to prove that there was a violation by the resource recovery facility itself. RICRA is a complicated statute. <clears throat> But the pieces of it are very clearly defined by Congress in the statutory definitions, and they fit together, ultimately, we think, to present a clear picture. And let me explain, Your Honor. It's quite clear in Section 3001I that Congress did not create what is deemed a waste stream exemption. They did not exempt any facilities other than the resource recovery facility itself. There's no way that you can read that statute to create a subchapter C regulation for any other facility. Because Congress is not creating a waste stream exemption, Congress also clearly omitted from Section 3001I any exemption from the distinct generator requirements under Section 3002, which are distinct 
from the treatment, storage, and disposal requirements, which they are exempt of from under Section 3004. Well, well does, does, the, does the government um, or, the, or the petitioner speak correctly then when it says that uh, you would not challenge the legitimacy uh, of the storage of the, nu of the ash on the resource recovery facility site? Uh, no, they do not. The court does not have to reach that issue here. Well, what is your position? On, on that issue, our position is that the Section 3001I was regulating one kind of activity from the resource recovery facility, and that is the, recover that is the recovery process itself. And let me give you an example. So that if the ash were stored on site, uh, that would be a, a, a violation of the act, right. or, or, or would be outside That's of the right. act. That's right, and that would be a, dis a distinct from our generator argument and our, and our downstream argument. But let me explain why. If the city, for instance, as suggested by uh, Mr. Rosenthal, it put a disposal facility on site, uh, they couldn't claim that exemption because Section 3001I only exempts a resource recovery facility. It doesn't purport to exempt any other activity that they might attempt to engage in there. So at what point does the facility lose its exemption with respect to the treatment of the waste? It, it loses the exemption at the moment the incineration resource recovery process is over. Uh, the statute, what it's doing is it means that although the city is clearly treating the hazardous waste and would otherwise be subject to 3004 of RICRA, it doesn't have to seek a Section 3004 permit because it is deemed not to be a RICRA permitted facility under Subchapter C. So the phrase disposing of applies uh, simply to the waste that it receives and not to the ash that it generates? That's right. Uh, what the statute means is that a particular activity will not be considered to be management of a hazardous waste. But what good does that do the, do the city if it's as narrow as you say? If, if they, they're obviously not going to store the stuff right, right, right in, the, in the RCRA itself. They're going to have to dispose of it somewhere. Chief Justice Rehnquist, it does the city an incredible amount of good. They don't have to try to obtain a permit under Section 3004 of RICRA, which includes RICRA's most rigorous performance requirements for the treatment, corrective action, financial assurance requirements, two-thirds of the incinerators, two-thirds, excuse me, of the facilities that are subject to Section 3004 after Congress passed in 1984 closed rather than try to get those permits. One half of them were denied the permits when they tried. The city doesn't have to achieve that. But household waste was already excluded Well, Your, Your Honor, before this amendment. Yeah, Your Honor, but before the 1984 amendment, there was absolutely no codification ever in the statute uh, to that effect. Uh, and the cities were making investments. In addition, there was no allowance for them to mix it with other kinds of waste and no allowance for their inadvertent receipt of hazardous waste. Mr. With Lazarus, the dis difference between that $42 ton price tag and $453 is enormous. I are you an taking the position that these would be economically feasible operations if the disposal had to be in accordance with subchapter C? Yes, absolutely, Your Honor. There, there's no doubt in our mind, and in several states, they manage their ash uh, under subchapter C uh, uh, in their states uh, rather because than Because of state regulation? Yes. Uh, they choose to do it under subchapter C rather than D, and actually that's in the record in this case, uh, district uh, court docket number 73, an affidavit uh, submitted to that effect. But let me explain why uh, it will still be economical. Uh, there are significant volume reduction benefits and energy benefits, but most importantly, if this fiction is eliminated, the city will quite quickly have an incentive to take the rational steps. And the most simple step they can take is that the ash, which is hazardous, 
The ash which tends to flunk EPA's toxicity characteristic analysis is the fly ash. That's where the heavy metals go. That's 10% by weight of the ash which is produced. The bottom ash, the bottom ash does not tend to be hazardous. Currently, because the city lacks any economic incentive, they mix the two, producing 100 units of ash that flunks the EPA toxicity characteristic analysis instead of 10 units of that ash. They could quickly reduce their cost by tenfold just by not affirmatively mixing the two. Uh, and that do, do they reach the uh, RCRA segregated? Excuse me? I mean, does, does the kind of ash that proves to be hazardous, does the metal that makes up that come separately to the RCRA from the, from the household ash? It comes from the household ash, and it also can come from the non-hazardous uh, industrial and commercial waste. And that's because although the industrial and commercial waste may be non-hazardous, they may contain hazardous constituents. And those hazardous constituents, because of the incineration process, do two things. One, they become concentrated in the ash. And two, they now become, on a, they become placed on a material, that is ash, with a very significant surface, percentage of surface on it. And it's the surface matter of ash and the concentration which together cause the ash to flunk EPA's toxicity characteristic analysis, which looks to whether a substance is likely to leach in a landfill. And it's because it's ash, because it's concentrated. So the hazardous waste here could well come not just from the household waste. The hazardous ash could well come from the commercial industrial waste with its hazardous constituents. May, may I ask, just because the, the, the chemistry and the amounts involved are hard for me to follow, but I assume that the, the, there is some hazardous waste in the incoming stream of, uh, of waste that is exempt, and you agree with that? That's right. We don't contest that here. That's right. If, if we assume that the process of incineration uh, produces a new ash that contained no larger percentage of hazardous materials than the incoming stream, would they then be subject to uh, subchapter C? Yes, they would, because they would have generated a hazardous waste. Even if, they, even if they have not enhanced the hazardous percentage of the total amount of garbage processed. Yeah, because but they have, obviously, in this case. Isn't it inevitable, then, that no matter what they do, that because they start with some hazardous waste, they're going to end up with some hazardous waste? But they're, going to end up with, they're going to end up with much, much less, Your Honor, in terms of the volume um, of it. Uh, there's uh, things that they could do, Your Honor, to try to avoid I they could do that. something better, but... Well, they could try source separation. Uh, in the first instance, they could try to avoid putting no, the kinds Just of even doing what they do, which is not the best, as I understand it, do they increase the, the ratio of hazardous to non-hazardous waste in the stream of garbage that they oh, process? Yes, they do, Your Honor. If you look at... But you say that's not legally required, but you say they just... They uh, certainly do. And let me explain. There are 180 million tons of municipal solid waste produced each year. Less than 1% of that would qualify as hazardous waste. If you look to the ash that's produced because of the concentration, because of the ash material, as in this case, 32 out of 35 samples flunk EPA's toxicity characteristic analysis. This is a fundamental chemical transformation, uh, and that is the concentration and the material. And that's why it flunks EPA's toxicity characteristic analysis. It's one thing for Congress, Your Honor, it's one thing for Congress to have exempted a waste where out of 180 million tons, less than 1% is hazardous and not to require the municipalities to sort through that. It's a very different policy view, and it was a sensible distinction, we believe, not to exempt a substance when once you have isolated the part which is hazardous, uh, which is on an ash material, which has the toxicity characteristic analysis, not to exempt that. When Congress wanted, Your Honor, when Congress wanted to create a waste stream exemption in RICRA, Congress did it explicitly. 
and they did it with procedural safeguards. Mr. Lazarus, you're not questioning that EPA originally in 1980 had a waste stream exemption. No, we're not, we're not questioning that. It wasn't a waste stream exemption, though, that actually would have applied uh, to this case, uh, because as EPA recognized in 1985 in their preamble statement, right after RICRA's enactment, uh, that hazardous waste, uh, excuse me, that exclusion only applied to the incineration of household waste. It didn't apply to the incineration of household waste mixed with other kinds of waste. Uh, and so that's why EPA said uh, in 1985 that under EPA's then existing regulations, this ash would not be exempt. Uh, but wholly apart from that, wholly apart from the fortuity in this case that we don't have a mixture, uh, we think that Congress addressed the issue for the first time in 1984 and 3001. And silently changed what had been a waste stream exemption into a facility exemption. Well, not silently, Your Honor. I think, as Mr. Rosenthal said, there's not, this is not a question of congressional silence. This is a question of the plain meaning of the words of the statute. And the plain meaning of the words of the statute creates one kind of an exemption, and that's a facility exemption. And if you look at the question presented in this case, uh, presented by uh, both the United States uh, and by the city of Chicago, the question presented is whether Section 3001I of RICRA exempts the ash. It's a waste stream exemption premised on one provision. They aren't arguing for a facility exemption. They're arguing for a waste stream exemption. How about the city's argument that when Congress legislates, it's presumed to have uh, ratified a prior administrative construction? Your Honor, in this case, uh, first of all, that doesn't apply because Section 3001I uh, the, the, excuse me, the prior administrative construction wouldn't have covered the situation, and that is the situation of the mixture. Uh, and whatever presumption might exist, Your Honor, uh, that presumption is clearly overcome by the plain meaning of the statute, which did not adopt the, the words and the language of that prior regulation. That prior regulation was written as a waste room exemption. Section 3001I is written as a facility exemption. What do you mean by the term mixture? Uh, before uh, 1984, uh, a resource recovery facility which mixed uh, household waste uh, with non-household waste, uh, waste from commercial industrial sources, uh, had no benefit uh, from the household waste exclusion. Uh, one of the things that Section 3001I did uh, was allow them to mix the two and allow for the in inadvertent uh, receipt of hazardous waste uh, by allowing for certain kinds of procedural safeguards and gave basically uh, some kind of protection for municipalities so that they could avoid regulation under Section 3004, which was the RICRA permit uh, requirement. Now, you say the cost estimates, if we agree with petitioner, are, are uh, incorrect? Yes, yes, Your Honor. The, the cost estimates are, are, are incorrect. And what do we have in the record to uh, clarify that for us? Well, the, your Honor, um, in the record, there's really no, nothing in the record to support their claims or our claims. We're, we're both dealing with extra record material. Uh, we think that uh, the, the support that we have given in this case, in which we tried to rely in our brief on EPA reports and legislative reports, um, bear out our position. One reason we don't have an administrative record, Your Honor, is also one reason why we don't think EPA's view should be entitled to any deference. Uh, there's no administrative record in this case. There's no record evidence. Uh, because EPA has never promulgated a legislative rule on this issue. Uh, the record would no doubt be much better uh, if there had been a well, legislative rule. Well, does EPA rule. need to promulgate a rule if it decides not to regulate something? Uh, in a case like this, Your Honor, where EPA had said in a prior interpretive rule in 1985 that its existing legislative rules 
made this ash subject to subchapter C regulation, if EPA is going to change its interpretation of an existing legislative rule, it should do it by a legislative rule. Uh, it shouldn't do it by an interpretive rule. And, and this memorandum in this case is at best an interpretive rule, because even interpretive rules are supposed to be published in the Federal Register under the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, and this rule uh, was not. Uh, let me turn the Court's attention, though, just for a moment to Section 3001, B2, and B3, because I think those provisions, which really became highlighted in Petitioner's reply brief, show that Congress knew how to create a waste stream exemption when it wanted to. Uh, in Section 3001, B2, and B3... Where do we find these? Um, actually, they're cited in their reply brief. Um, and the yellow not, brief? Yeah, they're cited in their reply brief. Let me see if I can... They're just cited? They're yeah, they actually do not give the, the text of... And of you the, don't give the text in your brief? No, we did not, Your Honor. Uh, it wasn't actually until I uh, saw their citation of them, I decided to see what support they gave for the city's, petition, uh, city's position, and I realized that actually uh, those provisions supported our position uh, and not the city's. Uh, and so at that, up to that point, we had never cited those provisions because we thought they were so obviously distinct when the city relied upon them it occurred to me that actually that distinction helped our case uh, more than I had taken advantage of in our opening brief. Uh, in those provisions, in Section 3001B2 and B3, Congress created explicit waste stream exemptions, and that is for waste associated with the exploration, production, and development of oil and natural gas, and waste uh, from the combustion of coal. In those provisions, Congress, with respect to coal combustion, specifically refers in the statute to fly ash and bottom ash. But at the same time that Congress authorized in those provisions EPA to create a waste stream exemption, Congress imposed significant procedural safeguards because of the environmental risk associated with a waste stream exemption as opposed to facility exemption. In particular, Congress required EPA to study the effects of a waste stream exemption applied to those wastes. Congress required EPA to hold a public hearing on that issue. Congress required EPA to receive public comment on that issue. Congress required EPA, if it decided to exempt those wastes as a waste stream from subchapter C, to make a formal determination to that effect and to report that determination to Congress. Now, what the city is seeking in this case is a waste stream exemption far broader than that created by Congress when it specifically addressed the issue and without any of the procedural safeguards that Congress deemed necessary prior to the creation of a waste stream exemption. We simply don't believe, Your Honor, that the statutory language comes anywhere close to supporting the city's contention. You have to put the pieces of the RICRA puzzle together. You have to look at the clear definitions of the terms generation, management, disposal in section 1004. There is only one facility, there is only one facility that is disposing of hazardous waste in this case. And that facility is the private landfill operator in Joliet, Illinois. We are not claiming that the city is disposing of hazardous waste. Because to be disposing of hazardous waste, you have to be discharged, depositing, injection, dumping, spilling, or leaking, or placing it on the land or water. And there's only one facility which is doing that. And that facility does not enjoy the benefit of Subchapter C. And the city is violating the distinct generator requirements under Section 3002 because one of those requirements, in addition to the testing requirement, the determination whether it's a hazardous waste, the labeling requirement, and the manifest tracking system requirement, which, which is so essential as the gatekeeper to let the downstream facilities comply with subchapter C, 
is that the city also, as a generator, one of the requirements under Section 3002 is that the generator assure that the waste is ultimately disposed not by them, but by somebody else at a RICRA-permitted facility under Section 3004. And that is the distinct generator requirement. The pieces fit very nicely together. The statute is very clear. This is not a statute where we have to guess at the meaning of the terms. There are 40 terms defined in Section 1004 of RICRA, very clearly, very carefully defined. Suppose the city segregated the waste, as you suggest, so that initially it put the stuff in piles where the more hazardous stuff was in one pile, and it left, and it, left it there. And then it started to seep out into the land. Would, would that be a violation of the Act? Well, well, Your Honor, actually, under our reading of the statute, uh, actually under the way the, the resource recovery facility works, uh, it's actually not, they don't have to segregate it. It's already separate. Uh, the fly ash and the bottom ash are actually... No, no, no. My, I have a different hypothetical. Suppose that they take the refuse as it comes to them and separates it into two piles. One pile has a lot of the hazardous stuff in it, and it just lets that pile sit for six, eight months. Uh, is, is that a violation of the Act, or are they within the exemption? Um, since we believe that the exemption does apply to the waste that they receive in the first place. Well, what is it about the statute that triggers uh, the loss of the exemption when the ash is created? Uh, what, 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 what are the words that you, you want me to look to? Um, because under the words of the statute, the only activities that are referred to in Section 3001I are the receiving and burning of the waste and the recovering of energy from the mass burning. No, it talks about treating, storing, disposing. Right, but the only thing that it says does not amount to treating, storing, or disposing, or otherwise managing. Is the resource recovery facility recovering energy from the mass burning? Uh, that's the only activity which is said to be deemed not to be management, and that's why that facility does not have to obtain a Section 3004. Tell me where I'm supposed to read, subject where it says receives and burns? Uh, uh, under section, uh, subsection 1A, such facility receives and burns only uh, and describes there. Now, Your Honor, to, to rule... No, but that the describes the facility, not the act. The, the acts are treating, storing, disposing, otherwise managing. Yeah, but th that is saying that certain acts shall not be considered to be treating, storing, disposing. And we think the act which is not considered to be treating, storing is the recovery energy from the mass burning of municipal those terms just, just modify the word recovery facility. Uh, well, we there, think there, there are modifiers describing what, what kind of recovery facility shall not be deemed. That's right, and, and it's, it's that activity which well, shall not be deemed to be managing. Now, of course, Your Honor, the court does not have to reach uh, that distinct issue to rule in our favor because what we're claiming here is not that they're treating, storing, disposing, or otherwise managing. Oh, we're claiming that they're violating the generator requirement. You, you assume that the subject of the sentence is, is uh, um, a resource recovery facility recovering energy, and, and uh, um, maybe the subject is a resource recovery facility. Well, Your, Your Honor, it seems quite uh -huh. clear to us that if the city changed the nature of their facility and said, well, this isn't just going to be a resource recovery facility, this is now going to be a landfill disposal facility, uh, that they wouldn't be in, entitled to the benefit of Section 3001I, that Congress was not in intending to promote resource recovery facilities by exempting from 3004, allowing the city to put a different kind of facility there, such as a disposal facility. No, it has to be recovering energy from mass burning, but it may be doing other things as well. No, Your Honor. We think that the only thing that 3001I addressed 
uh, was an example. Well, you think that, but I'm not sure that the language is, uh, is clear on that. Well, I think, Your Honor, I, I think the language is quite clear, uh, and in all events, the language is quite clear that in no event are they entitled to any exemption from the generator requirements, and in no event is any other kind of facility entitled. Well, then, then storing the, uh, storing the, uh, the uh, household waste uh, prior to its combustion isn't covered, because that, that is not a resource recovery facility recovering energy. It's not doing anything. It's just sitting there. Your Honor, I, in, in terms of them receiving it, we believe that there is enough language in the statute to support uh, the notion that if they're doing that, because of not if we agree with the argument you just made. Well, we think that uh, I pointed out a moment ago that we have an elaboration upon the receiving burden. Your Honor, if this court were to rule that they weren't entitled to that exemption either, which is an issue not presented uh, in this case, uh, I would probably have to talk to my client, uh, and, and maybe they might uh, agree with that reading. Uh, that is not, however, uh, the position uh, that is raised in this case, uh, and is not the contention uh, that we're addressing. You don't want us to go so far as to agree with the logic of what you've said. Right? Uh, I, I, would not, I would not object uh, to this court uh, giving Section 3001I uh, a narrow reading. Uh, the fact is there is a settled canon of, of statutory construction in this court, which we think is applicable here. And that is when one talking about a remedial statute, that exemptions to those remedial statutes should be narrowly uh, and not broadly. And considered. how do we tell a remedial statute from a non-remedial statute? Well, I think, I think in this case, when you have a statute designed to protect uh, human health, uh, in the natural environment. That is the paradigmatic case of remedial statute. I see my time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Lazarus. Mr. Rosenthal, you have two minutes. Thank you. I'd like to first turn to the question whether what we have here is a waste stream exemption. Because no one should mistake the boldness of what EDF is asking this court to hold. EDF is asking this court to hold that Congress was misrepresenting when it crafted this statute, that Congress, in fact, wasn't clarifying anything, that that is a misrepresentation, that Congress intended to dramatically narrow the scope of the exemption that these facilities receive if they mix in, to use Mr. Lazarus's words, any non-hazardous commercial and industrial waste. The interesting thing about the record in this case is it shows that 99% of what this facility receives is household waste. In EDF's view, because the city mixes in 1% or less than 1% non-hazardous commercial and industrial waste, Congress would have intended a dramatically different result, would have intended to end the waste stream exemption. It is, as one of Justice Ginsburg's questions um, uh, noted, it is the resource recovery facility itself that must find a way to dispose of the ash. When that ash is on site, it is the resource recovery facility's problem. How are you going to dispose of it? Are you going to have to dispose of it as hazardous waste and pay $453 a ton, according to EPA's estimate, or can you dispose of it at a more feasible cost of $42 a ton as non-hazardous waste? For all these reasons, uh, I ask the judgment be reversed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rosenthal. The case is submitted.